Good morning. Does anybody know what Noel means? Nobody? Christmas, what? Christmas in French. Okay, I, I, we sing that every year. I ask this question every year. Nobody knows what it means. Why do we sing stuff we don't know? <clears throat> we need to learn it then, I guess. I th- Christmas in French. Okay. I forget it every year. I think it means birthday. Y'all look it up. Google that, okay? So next week if we sing Noel, you, you'll know what you're singing. But anyway, I, I don't know what that has to do with the message. Okay, let's think about it this way. We, we need to know what we're celebrating. We need to know what we're doing. Uh, Christmas time has begun. Pageants have started. We attended one uh, Friday. A lot of times when you go to a Christmas pageant program or play, you will hear someone, especially if they're little children in the crowd, say, look, did you see the baby Jesus? I've said that, perhaps you've said it, um, and I want us to stop and think about what we are communicating when we say, did you see the baby Jesus in a manger? Yes, Jesus was born in a manger, but as soon as we ask the question, did you see him in some pageant or program, we've created an image of Christ for that child for whoever we are asking the question to, and we've also created an image for ourselves of who Christ is. And when we put him in a manger, we put him there as a baby, and babies are cute, and babies are cuddly. And is that the image of God we find in the Scriptures, that he's cute? And he's cuddly, and he's manageable. Yet that often is the one we are communicating to the next generation. Whereas when the angels showed up, and they tell the shepherds to go, or even talk to Mary and Joseph, it's more about glory to God in the highest. It's not about cute and cuddly. So how do we get from cute and cuddly to glory to God in the highest? Because this vision the shepherds have, this vision that's revealed to us, it's clear to us, it's much more glorious. It's much more awesome. It's much more all-consuming than a baby in a manger. And, And I've been asking myself, how do I get from here the cute and cuddly Jesus to the glorious, awesome, overwhelming Jesus? And you can examine with me the scriptures to begin to see what is a real biblical vision of Christ that we need to grasp and then communicate. As I've been asking God for that question, the the passage that most came to my mind through the Spirit was Isaiah 6, where Isaiah gets a vision, a biblical revealed vision of Christ. So I want us to look there this morning at Isaiah 6 and begin to acquire this vision that's given to us of Christ and perhaps take it into our Christmas celebration. So look with me at Isaiah 6. 
There's no doubt of what this passage is about. It's a vision of Christ. Beginning at verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. So it's, it's very clear from the beginning what he is seeing here is the Lord. It's a vision of the Lord. Let me read a few verses. Sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. I want to read it all, but let's, let's stop there for a minute. Uh, begin to get this vision that Isaiah has of Christ. He gets this vision, he says, after King Uzziah had died. Uzziah was a fairly good king as far as political parties go. He did a lot for the nation. He lived 52 years, or he reigned, excuse me, 52 years as king. Um, that's unheard of in America, somebody being our president for 52 years. How many of you can remember, to go back 52 years, we have to go back to uh, Truman or Eisenhower or Hoover. How many of you heard them talk on the radio or TV? You know, just, it's, it's about a third of you. You've got to go back, and you have to imagine that was your president when you heard them, and they've been the president for the entire period. Yet we've had 12 since then, some of them. Or imagine Trump gets elected, and he reigns for the next 52 years. I think that would put him dying at 122. Okay? So imagine that, and and you imagine what Isaiah was stepping into. They've had fairly a, a peaceful country under Uzziah for 52 years the same person in charge and he's building roads and wells and cisterns and walls and doing all sorts of good things for the economy for 52 years and then he dies and so practically speaking everybody living is like what's going to happen now what are we going to do now we've only known one leader and that's Uzziah so I imagine Isaiah's going into the temple to pray about this. The king has died. God, what will happen to us now? So going in, maybe with thoughts of the king on his mind, what are we going to do without a king? He walks into the temple, and he sees. His eyes are just immediately open. Isaiah, if this is your concern, that you don't have a king, no, wrong. You have a king, and he's sitting on the throne. And Isaiah immediately is drawn to this vision of this glorious, exalted one. The throne is no longer empty. It's filled with the Lord. And as he, as he sees that image of Christ on the throne, I mean, I would think some things would race through his mind. Should race through ours. No man has seen God and lived. I mean, is he, is he going to get out of here alive? Did, did he really just see the Lord? Look back at Exodus 33, 20. Um, 
God's word to Moses, and I'll stay here for just a minute in Exodus 33, but remind you of verse 20, and I'll back up. He says, but he said, you cannot see my face. No man can see me and live. Exodus 33, 20. That's God speaking to Moses. Now, imagine what Moses had seen at this point. Moses, walking, taking care of his sheep one day, sees this bush on fire in the desert. It should be consumed fairly quickly. It's not consumed. It's a mysterious sight to him. And so he gets closer to this bush that's burning. Why is it not burning up? And then God begins to speak to him. So Moses has God speaking to him directly, communicating, directing him where to go. And then Moses sees God work these ten plagues in Egypt. See God do these miraculous things that nobody's seen before. And then he sees God part the Red Sea. And he keeps seeing God at work, he looks at the cloud by day and the fire by night as they go out of Egypt. And he goes into the tent and he's continuing to hear God speak. And it's like the more he sees God work, the more he hears God speak. Moses is drawn in closer and closer and he he finally says, God, I want to see your face. I've had more than anybody else. I want more. And that's when God makes this declaration to him back in Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, I pray, show me your glory. He said, I I want more. I have seen so much. I want more. And he said, "I, I myself will make all, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll show compassion on whom I'll show compassion. But I'm not going to let you see my face. Like Moses, I get the request. You want to see my face. Ain't going to happen. Verse 21. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So you know that story. Moses gets to see the hindquarters of God. And from that moment on, when Moses comes out of the tent, seeing just that portion of God, God uses his own hand, says, I'm going to hide your face. You won't be able to see all of me, and I'll just pass by. But that's enough to cause Moses' face to shine with such brilliance that the people, when they see Moses, they say, Moses, we can't take it. Cover your face. Something has transformed you into this brilliant, shining human being. Just... A glimpse at the hind quarters of, of God. What does Isaiah see? Seems to be the same thing. He, the emphasis in verse 1, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The train's the back part. And that's what he emphasizes. I see this one on the throne. It's like he's, he's seeing, I, I, see, the, I see his robe. 
I, and, I, and it's just glorious. He's clearly the high and exalted one. And even that was, was an awe-inspiring vision to, to Isaiah. Nobody's seen his face. Why not? Think about the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Isaiah didn't have an eyesight problem. Moses didn't have a problem with his eyes. They both had a problem with their heart. They were not allowed to see God face to face. No one can because we are corrupt at our core. None of us are pure in heart. We will, now we see him darkly. Now we see him dimly as through a glass. We will not see him face to face until sin is completely removed. And then we can see him face to face. We, we can't see him now or we will die. We'll be consumed by his holiness. Our sin cannot touch or even come in close proximity to or it will destroy us. And God knew that. And, and, you know, God is so merciful and gracious that he, he reveals himself to us little by little. If God were to reveal himself to us in all of his holiness, it would consume us. We could not stand. God knows that combination. No man can see me and live. Because it would take a pure heart to do that. So... Moses gets that, he understands that, he understands he is standing on holy ground, and he even sees that depicted with the angelic being, the seraphim here. It says, they stood above him, verse 2, each having six wings. Two, they're covering their face, they can't look. Two, they're covering their feet, reminiscence of Moses at the burning bush. Take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. The very presence of God makes the ground that is surrounding him holy. So it's reminiscent of that. And with two, they fly. But you, you're con- getting this consistent picture of the holiness of God being illustrated. And then verse 3, it's proclaimed. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, and the foundations of the threshold tremble. Uh, think about that picture of God, holy, holy, holy. Uh, In American culture, we don't know what to do with repetition. As a matter of fact, uh, my uh, Microsoft Word program, if I ever repeat a word, you know, it underlines it in red, says, do you want to delete the repeated word? Because we're taught not to do that. But in the Hebrew culture, they didn't have any other way to communicate the comparative and the superlative degree like we do we we change things up so if something is good we don't say it's compared to something else it's gooder well some of us do we're supposed to say it's more good or it's better so we go from good to better that's the comparative degree it's better than something else the superlative degree is its best it's reached its highest potential or we could say it's good, gooder, and goodest. All right? 
The Hebrews couldn't do that. They didn't have words for that. So to get to the superlative degree, they would say it's holy, it's holy, it's holy. And that's the only word used to describe God in the superlative degree. Nowhere do you find Scripture saying God is love, love, love. Or God is just, just, just. Or God is merciful, merciful, merciful. The only time you find God described in the superlative degree is holy. It's holy, holy, holy. Meaning that's the core of his being. That's the core of his nature. So his love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His mercy is a holy justice. Because God is holy, holy, holy. The one thing God is that we are not is he is pure, sinless, sanctified, completely without sin. He can't even look upon sin. He can't be in the room with sin. Everything in the room with him perishes because he's holy, holy, holy. That's the vision Isaiah gets of Christ. That he's on the throne, yes. He's high. He's exalted. He's in control. He's sovereign. But in all of that, he is holy, holy, holy. And it's glory. Remember the angels. Glory to God in the highest. There's, there's something that needs to be in our vision that gets us to that high and glorious and exalted place. And I think it's this image of Christ as holy, holy, holy. It's not the image that we often give others. When you do surveys of people who have come to church and stay for a while and leave, and you ask those, those kind of folks, of course, that's not you because you're here. But if you were one of those kinds of folks, you ask them, you know, you used to come to church all the time, why are you not coming? Many times the answer is, well, I just didn't get anything out of it. To me, it got to the place where, you know, I didn't get anything, didn't get anything, didn't get anything. And then it got boring and boring and boring. And so... You know, I just didn't see a point. Quit coming. What's the problem there? The problem is, anytime you go to church trying to get something out of it, you, you're, you're on the path to boring. But church, that doesn't mean church is boring. The problem is what we're doing here. If you come to seek God, not come to seek what you can get, because you may or may not get something. But if you come to seek God, and God shows up, and God does show up in His sanctuary, in His people, and in His praises, and in His Word, if you come seeking God, God is anything but boring. When you see God, you will see Him highly exalted, and you will hear the angels say, Holy, Holy Holy, and even the doorpost, it says, have enough sense to tremble. You, you can't possibly leave the same if you see Christ. 
These, these rafters, these beams, this wood, I mean, how smart is that? I mean, we should start saying, you're as dumb as wood. You know, but even dumb wood knows enough, has intellectual ability to tremble in the presence of God. The wood is a created subject. Underneath the creator and acknowledges that creator when the creator shows up. Trembling under the, the might and authority and power. The holiness of God creates that impact on Isaiah, on the seraphim. And says, not just the, the, the thresholds over the door, but the very foundations of that place began to shake at the voice of him who cried out. Um, let God's word create that vision for you. That, that vision of Christ coming to earth. God coming down to display, to reveal the invisible God. It's not a cute and cuddly picture at all. You know, the, the more I think about it, that Satan is the one who really wants to tempt us and move us to his cute view I won't get anything from that, and I'll just be bored, and I'll just leave. Well, let's move on. When you really see a picture of the holiness of Christ, it will cause you pain. There's pain within this vision that Isaiah has, verse 5. He says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, uh, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah immediately understood. God is holy, holy, holy. I am not. So this is not going to work. A holy God and a sinner, we're not going to get along. Woe is me. We don't use that word much today, do we? We need to bring it back. It's a good word. Um, I grew up with the cartoon Mighty Mouse. Anybody seen Mighty Mouse? Yeah, it's cool. All right. Mighty Mouse, is it still on? No, it's a superhero. And superhero had a girlfriend. Mighty Mouse's girlfriend was always getting caught by the villain. And the villain was always tying her up on the railroad tracks. And the railroad train was coming. And as she was on the tracks, she was always screaming the same thing. Woe is me, woe is me. You got a pretty good picture of what woe is. Woe means I'm about to be destroyed. I'm done. I'm doomed. And, and that's what Isaiah had here. He said, woe, I have just come into a room with the one who is holy, holy, holy. And immediately he's falling down. Woe is me. I am doomed. I'm destroyed. I'm about to be done. And he understood why. Because I'm unclean. The, the, the issues of life come out of the heart to the mouth, right? He said, he said, my heart is corrupt. I am not pure. You can see it on my lips. And not only am I not pure and holy, 
but none of the people I know are either. I don't have any place to hide. There's no one I can run and get behind. I'm not clean, they're not clean. We're done here. That's the pain he felt in the presence of God. Do you feel that? When you come into the presence of God, that, you know, it's like if God is holy in the superlative degree, we should be crying out in God's presence, God, I come before you today, sinner, sinner, sinner. I'm a sinner in the superlative degree. Compare or compare to you, definitely. I am corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. I am polluted, polluted, polluted. I am sin- sinful. I am without holiness, without purity. And you're everything I'm not. Everything I need. That's a painful realization, and that's where Isaiah was. You know, um, I've often thought about it. I don't do anything about it, but I think about it sometimes. If you ever go to a swimming area, whether it's a swimming pool or a lake or pond or something where the campground, you'll usually see a sign, and they, they have the swimming rules. On the swimming rules, we still have it in our society. They need to just take it off because our society's changed, I guess. But one of the rules, usually in public square is no profanity. You've seen that rule? And I've often thought about it. It's a good rule. I've often thought it when I was in a public place, like a concert or a golf match or football, basketball, and you hear people cussing. I'm thinking, wait, do you not understand you're in public? I grew up with this rule. It was called no profanity. You don't do that in public. If we took that rule seriously, we would all have to leave immediately. Because at our core, we are all profane. We're all unholy. We are all sinners. So if the rule for this place is no profanity, then we would have to get up and go. Because we've all broken the rule. We all live as rule breakers of no profanity. Isaiah got it. Do we get that? We are sinner, sinner, sinner in need of a holy God. Um, You know, I I think it's Satan's scheme to get us not to, to look at Christ because he's holy. If we look at Christ, we'll have to see us. He also is his scheme to get us not to call anybody a sinner. What a big temptation in our society. You can't say she's a sinner. You can't say he's a sinner. The reason the Clemson game was played in Orlando last night was because our culture says you can't call certain people sinners in Charlotte. We have to love everybody. And you see, if nobody is a sinner, then you don't have to see a Savior. You don't need one. And it's Satan's scheme. But if we're sinners, 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 then we are in desperate need of a holy, holy God. And the two can't meet without a mediator, without Christ. 
you must see Christ. But we're being tricked into saying, God is cute and cuddly, and we are okay. And that can't be the vision we have of Christ and of Christmas. And it can't be the vision we communicate to the next generation. It was certainly not Isaiah's vision. He saw himself as one who was in pain, under doom and destruction because of his sin. The good news, there is a cure. It comes in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Awesome. God says, You've expressed your sin as being on your lips. Wise man, because out of your heart flow the issues of life. Out of your heart, murder and corruption and all manner of sinfulness comes through your mouth. He says, I'm going to take that wound, your lips, and I'm going to cauterize it. I'm going to cleanse it. Now, this cleansing is, is coming here by a seraph, by, by a messenger. But the implication is God's doing this. And God makes a declaration. Your sin, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. What's the picture there? What is God doing for Isaiah? You remember the, the, the language or the vision of the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 1, 15. Let me look it up. It, it came to me. Just, I, sh- I should make this a Christmas message. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Maybe I'll do this next year. It says, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to do what? Save sinners among whom I am foremost, chief. But catch, catch Paul's declaration. He says, it's a trustworthy statement. It, it basically, if you don't believe anything else I am saying, get this. This is trustworthy. You take this to the bank. You can count on this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He's the Savior. We are the sinners. That's the combination we have here. When the angels see that Christ has come into the world, what do they say? Unto us, Luke 2, 11, you know it. Unto us this day is born for us in the city of David, what? A Savior. Why did we need a Savior? Because we are sinners. Not unto us is born today in the city of David a cute, cuddly baby boy. But no, unto us this day is born a Savior. And He's holy, holy, holy. So He can deal with sinners. And even the angelic message to Joseph. Joseph, I know Mary is pregnant. She has conceived by the Holy Spirit. You want to send her away? Don't do that, Matthew 1. Rather, this is your job. Be with her, keep the boy, and call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. So the vision given Joseph, 
The vision Paul gives us, the vision the angels give us, is when you see Jesus, see a Savior of sinners. And the vision we have from Isaiah chapter 6 is when I see Jesus, I see a Savior who comes to sinners. That is the vision God is revealing to us that we need to communicate to others that Christ is clearly the Savior we need. We are clearly sinners. There's no getting around it. Well, if you get that and you understand that, you are a person in need of pardon. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Have you said it recently? God, I am a sinner. Say that with me. I am a sinner. My kids are sinners. My wife's a sinner. My husband's a sinner. I am a sinner. And I am in need of a Savior. I need to look upon a Savior. If I confess my sins, He Christ is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. He can do that because he is sinless. See, I, you can't clean me up. A sinner trying to clean up a sinner is a mess trying to fix a mess. That can't happen. The only way we can be cleansed is one who is holy to the superlative degree has to do it. And he's come as a holy Savior to save his people from their sins. Look at Jesus and then concede that you're a sinner. Then confess your sin and he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The Christmas message. It's great news. He goes on to tell Isaiah to proclaim it. Back in Isaiah 6 verse 8. He says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Stop right there. When you get that word, us, the plural, who's, who's talking? It reminded me of Genesis one twenty six. says, Let us make man in our image. Isaiah has been drawn into the presence of God, and he's getting to hear an exchange between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And now that they have forgiven Isaiah, it's like they let him overhear this God speaking to God dialogue. Who will go for us? And Isaiah, overwhelmed, said, that'd be me. Because I just got cleansed. And he gets a very good principle here every, every time. The Savior saves a sinner. The sinner becomes a servant. Every time the Savior saves a sinner, the sinner becomes a servant. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. Paul speaks of this beginning about verse 18. He says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors of Christ. I mean, that's a therefore. It just happens. If you have been reconciled, you immediately become a minister of reconciliation. Every time the Savior saves a sinner, the sinner becomes a servant. In, employed in this ministry of reconciliation, calling on other people to be reconciled to God. Glory to God in the highest peace on earth with men. This holy God who has wrath towards earth is now bringing peace to, to earth through Christ. You can be reconciled. It's a ministry of reconciliation. It's a message of reconciliation. How do you get sinners and holiness together reconcile them you can only do it through christ if you have received christ all you do is tell people what's happened to you i was a sinner in need of a savior the savior came to me made me holy changed my heart so that i can live with a holy god that's the ministry he gives us, Isaiah understood that back in Isaiah 6, verse 8. So he says, I'm here. I've been, I've been cleansed. I'm now ready for ministry. I was cleansed for this purpose. Not just to sit back and bask in holiness, but to be employed as a minister of reconciliation. So, verse 9, he said, so to him, go and tell the, to this people. And they catch the message. It's not the popular message we hear. Keep on listening but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? I mean, think about the message, first of all. I want you to go, and I want you to preach. And it's this ministry of reconciliation. But I want you to realize not everybody's going to respond. A lot of people, they're, they're dull. Their senses are kind of turned off to God. They're going to stay that way. Matter of fact, they're even going to get harder. You think they're hard of hearing? They are. You think they don't want to listen? They don't. But I want you to go preach. And I want you to go preach and teach and, and minister reconciliation. But you're only going to see a little fruitfulness. If somebody tells me that, I'm going to ask the same question. How long do I have to do this? this? I thought this was going to be fun. This is not fun after all. That I'm preaching a message that people don't want to hear. And they don't want to just jump on me. This should be the best news of all. We're sinners and God's holy and there's, there's cleansing. Yeah, but people don't want to be called sinners. And they don't want... A God who's holy. They want a God who's cute, cute and cuddly and manageable. So they're not going to just jump all over this message. Well, how long do I have to give it? And he gives the answer, verse 11. Then, he, then I said, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people. And the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. 
And it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. Same message, of course, said of Christ in Luke. He says he's going to be here for the rise and fall of many. Here we see the rise and fall. And this fall is great. The destruction is great. Houses will be desolate with no one there anymore. Whole cities will be wiped out. The way of destruction, the way of being doomed, done, under woe, that's a lot. But there's this tenth portion. You might want to circle that. that God, God likes that number. Tenth portion. The tithe is the tenth. And the language is that the tenth portion, the tithe, is always God's. It's not ours, it's His. And the same language is used here, just as in, in finances, God gives you 100%. But He says, now remember, a tenth portion that is mine. You set it aside, that's your tithe, that's what you give me. And here he says, I have created all these beings, and I want you to go preach to them. 90% are not going to follow, but the tenth portion I'm going to spare, that's mine. That's the set-apart portion. That's the sacred portion. That's the holy portion. And even though it will go through trials and tribulations like a tree being burned down, the stump is the tenth part of that tree that still remains through the fire, and after the fire is said and gone, it grows. It remains. It's been cleansed, just like that coal cleansed his lips. And now it, it blossoms in heaven in holiness. It's kind of like Jesus talking about the two roads. There's a broadened road that leads to destruction. There's this narrow road, narrow gate that leads to life. And, and we're, we're fed this message that we want 100%. We want to see everyone saved, yes. And yet God preaches this message, I want my people saved. I want this tenth portion. What, in a nutshell, what God is saying to Isaiah is, I want you to go preach, and I want you to tell those people, I am fed up with sin. I'm done. I'm ready to come and burn the entire nation. I'm ready to destroy houses, to desolate homes, to destroy it all, but, 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 I'm going to save the tenth portion. And that's the good news. Because we all deserve destruction. We, we all deserve hell. And God says, good news here, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save some. I'm going to send my son into the world that he might save. Who's he saving? His people. Circle the pronoun. You'll see it, I think, over 140 times. God saving His people. This tenth portion from their sin that they might be holy as God is holy. Only God brings cleansing. Only God brings this peace. 
I, I hope you begin to grasp a bigger, all-consuming, overwhelming vision of Christ and why we should celebrate Him. What He, he does for us is He takes our sin upon Himself that we might be this sacred family of God, this holy portion that becomes holy vessels in the house of God for all eternity. If you get what I think is happening here, if you get this vision that Isaiah sends forward to New Testament times and the wise men and the shepherds and the angels pick up on, let me give you four applications. I think, number one, we will allow only a biblical vision to captivate our mind, not a small view of Christ. Allow only a biblical vision to captivate your mind. If somebody says, hey, look at the little baby in the manger. Wait, wait, wait. I'm only going to allow a biblical vision. I don't, I don't want your vision of Christ. I want Christ's vision of Christ. And when I get Christ's vision of Christ... I think it's closer to the hymn, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Only allow a biblical vision of Christ. Number two, maintain a right and holy vision of Christ which brings you pain. You can check your vision. You've got the right vision of Christ when you hate your sin. And you say, God, I am so messed up. Woe is me. Come with mercy and kindness and save this sinner. Maintain a vision. Check that vision, a right vision, by whether or not it truly brings us pain, points out sin, and our need for forgiveness. Number three, rejoice in the sovereign forgiveness that God does bring us. And then request it. It's now available in Christ. Do you need pardon? I need pardon. I need forgiveness. If you are here this morning, you've never asked for it. Ask for it. If you confess you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, He's working in your heart, and He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've gotten the right vision this morning, you should be seeking pardon, pardoning grace, forgiveness that only Christ can provide. It's like it's offered in the Lord's Supper. This is Christ's body. This is Christ's blood. It's given for the forgiveness of your sins. Partake, eat, and drink of Christ for forgiveness, for pardon, for cleansing. And then number four, don't keep the good news to ourselves. We are ambassadors of Christ reconciling the world to himself. Let us share that we're sinners in need of a Savior. Christ is the Savior. We will point out sin of others just as we'll point out sin in ourselves. Joe said we'll, we'll confess our sins to one another because until we see that we're sinners, we're not going to see how desperately we need a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this glorious vision revealed to Isaiah first and through him to us. Enlarge our vision of our Redeemer, our glorious King, 
a sinless Christ. Let us see more than we're typically offered. Let us see more than Satan would want us to ever catch a glimpse of. Let us see that we are sinners to the greatest degree, doomed, destroyed, without hope, and without mercy, except by your sovereign grace. By grace, O Lord, we are saved through faith in Christ alone. Grant us that faith to trust Christ, to take our sins, and to make us holy. And let us live a holy life, pleasing, exalting you. Let us be that tenth portion. Let us understand, again, there are parts of this world that are sacred and holy. Those parts you've redeemed for yourself. And let us rejoice. Use us, O Lord. Make us reconcilers. Let us share the good message to our family, to our next generation, and to those around us. Make us effective, as effective as you'll let us be, that all that are appointed unto life might believe. And use us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.